0: In the name of God, who creates, redeems, and sanctifies, amen. amen. Please sit. See? It just, I can't, it's like I can't catch a break today. Don't even get me started. I, you all thought I was having a nice week off last week, and actually, Lane had a stomach bug, and so I don't even get me started. When we find Jesus this morning, he's having an interesting day too. He is full-on teaching mode this morning. This story that we hear in the gospel is smack in the middle of a bunch of other parables. Literally, it just goes one to the next to the next. Stories and sayings. He's teaching the disciples and the crowds what it means to follow him, how to find wholeness, how to find fulfillment. Story after story, lesson after lesson, all of them filled with meaning, with answers. He's trying to show us the, the way, the questions, the, the path, how to follow in his footsteps. And ultimately he's trying to show us how to love God and love our neighbors and learn to love ourselves. Which, by the way, is why we begin in Lent with the summary of the law. I know that probably seems counterintuitive and feels like a very somber moment, but it's a helpful thing for us to remember the boundaries that God is trying to give us, the guideposts along the way. God is trying in the law to teach us how to live well, how to love, how to not be afraid, how to make you know, our path around some common mistakes that other people have made. That's why we revisit the law not to feel badly about ourselves, but to understand our place in the world. And to understand that Jesus' path, should we choose to follow it, comes with some very definite choices about how to live. And this morning when we see Jesus, he's giving more of those sort of definite choices to people. It's important for us to try and put in perspective. It's, It's not in the text, and so it's hard to see. But it's important to try and put into perspective that at this point in his life, he's kind of a big deal, right? People are listening to him. They're coming from all over to hear about him. He's performed a couple of miracles, and so they think he can do great things, and so they're coming for help. And so it's kind of like he's a big name at this point. He's, you know, he's a Glennon Doyle, or he's a, a James Canfield, or um, maybe even a Brene Brown. Right? If he was alive today, he'd have tons of Twitter followers, probably a couple of book deals, a pulpit to preach in, if he wanted those things. And that's debatable. But he would be very, very popular. He was a big deal. And so people are coming from all over to see him, and he's telling these stories. But we have to keep in mind that what he's telling people is not exactly easy to digest. Right. The thing is that while he's out there telling them the truth, and some people are intrigued and they think he's fantastic and they're learning from him about how to live a rich, fulfilling life, there are a whole lot of other people that are really mad about what he's saying. Because the truth and the way of Jesus and the way of love is filled with those very definite choices that are often counterintuitive to the way that the world lives and the way that the world teaches us to live. Love calls out so much that the world wants to ignore and to sort of sweep under the rug and get over and pretend it isn't there. And you can see that right at the beginning of the passage, right? The very beginning of the passage tells us that the Pharisees are grumbling because Jesus is eating with sinners. How dare he? Can you imagine? But really, here's this huge phenomenon of a guy who, if he were alive today at this point in his ministry, would be a big deal. He claims to be a holy man, to represent God, and then he goes and does all these things that fall well outside the religious elite's understanding of how life should be, how it should work, and what the social norms look like. He doesn't want to hang out with them. And they're kind of used to being the cool guys who, if you're holy and you speak for God, You want to hang out with them. They're the big deal guys. Jesus is not interested in the prestige of hanging out with them. Instead, he is eating with sinners, hanging out with the people that have been left out and pushed aside and ignored. And I can't help but feel like this particular story is a response, right? Jesus hears the Pharisees grumbling, and he says, oh, you don't like that, huh? Let me do you one better. And he tells this story about the prodigal son. It's a fairly simple story with a lot of different meaning sort of crammed into it. We could be here all day if I pulled the whole thing apart, so I'm not going to do that. But there are three things today that I want us to focus on. So let's look at the story. The father has two sons. One asks for his inheritance early, which, by the way, is a huge insult in case you missed that. That's sort of like going to your parent and saying, you know, I don't want to wait until you're dead. Can I have the money now? Right? Kind of an insult. Asks for his inheritance, gets his inheritance. His father gracefully divides it, which, you know, there's no comment on it from the father, which is amazing, right? But gracefully divides it anyway. Kid takes the money, leaves, and wastes it. Half of the inheritance. Money maybe that his father worked for, right? Or even if it was money that was handed down in the family, it's still money that he stewarded and invested and took care of and kept safe for his children so that they could have a a good life. Money which the younger son could easily have used to build a life himself, to take care of his family, to do some good in the world. It probably was a decent chunk of money, truthfully, knowing what we know about the father. He has some property. He has some means. So it was probably a decent chunk of money that he could have done a lot of things with. But instead, he wastes it and then finds himself in trouble. A famine, no food, no money. He's working on a farm, and the pigs that he's feeding are eating better than he is. And here, the text says something really interesting. It says, he came to himself. What does that mean, do you think, that he came to himself? Literally in the Greek. It's under the circumstances of having come into himself, as if he had left himself, as if he had to go back into his own body to take control of his senses again. In fact, lots of people translate it, coming to his senses, which is not literal, but is a good image for us. It's a, it's a reawakening, right? It's like something had to sort of snap him out of it to get him to come back to his senses, to come back to being himself. What makes that possible for him, do you think? What makes this idea real for him? I would venture to say that it's because he knows somewhere in his bones that his father is an honorable man. Somewhere in his bones, he knows that he can go home. And that's the first piece for us today. What makes this possible for him, to come back into himself, to retake his senses, to retake his body, to start over, is that he knows his father. It's about relationship. He doesn't expect to come back and be celebrated, to be clear, right? He's willing to go back and just be a hired hand, but he knows somewhere in his body that his father is an honorable man and will at least give him some work to do, that he won't starve to death. It's relationship. In order to come back and debase himself like that, to be willing to take a job like that on his own land, he had to trust in his relationship with his father. He had to trust that he knew whose he was, that he knew where he he came from, who he belonged to. That's the first part for today. He comes back to himself because of relationship and then the text goes on his father has other plans right the father sees his son at a distance and before he's even come close has made all these plans in his head right eventually we hear the ring and the robe and the fatted calf and then there's this great image that i really want you to imagine and it would be better if i was down there so you're gonna have to imagine it While the son is still at a distance, the father puts on his sandals hurriedly, you know, he sort of jams his feet in there, pulls up the hem of his garments and runs out the door, down the front of the property to the road and keeps running down the road to meet his son. He has no idea at this point, mind you, where his son has been, what his son has done. He doesn't know that the money is gone, he might assume, but he doesn't know and he doesn't ask. He just runs. He gathers up his clothes and he runs. And he throws his arms around his son and kisses him and holds him and welcomes him home. Notice that there is no conversation in this moment, no questions, no shame, no blame. Nothing but unconditional love and strong, brave, active love at that. This is not passive. He doesn't sit on his front porch and wait until his son takes his sweet time and comes down the road. He doesn't punish him. He doesn't sort of let him come and say all the things on the front porch. No. No, he runs. This is the second part for today. See the love of the father. See the love of this parent who runs down the road. Not worried about his own self-respect, not worried about how ridiculous he looks, not worried about who's going to think he's dumb because his kid lost all the money, not worried about anything except the fact that his kid is home. Unconditional, overwhelming love that delights, delights in the fact that his child is home. And then of course we have the older brother. and when. When folks like to sort of pull this story apart, there are a lot of scholars who like to say that the older brother represents humanity, represents all of us. Now, and I say that, and it, we can all still find ourselves in lots of places in this story, but there is something, something real about human nature in the older brother. And certainly, this is the lesson for the Pharisees. This is the, the sort of shocking part for the Pharisees, where Jesus says, I'm, you know, I'm going to do you one better. You don't want me to eat with these people? Let me tell you a story. (laughs) So if the older son represents humanity, it's sort of easy to draw those lines, right? The older son is hurt. He's angry. He feels betrayed. He's worked all these years and wasn't irresponsible. He did all the work. His brother left and was no help at all. And he was the one who was there every day, day in, day out, got up early, went to work, did all the things his father asked him to do. And now, look, he feels underappreciated. How could his father do this when his little brother had been so horrible, so irresponsible? Is there no benefit to doing the right thing? Is there no honor in being the good guy, the hard worker, in not messing up? Now, it could be, having this response, that the older brother didn't do any of this for the right reasons, right? And I'm not going to go down that road this morning, but it's important to acknowledge that in his response, it should leave us wondering about his motivations and whether or not his heart is in the right place. Did he do that because he was a good guy, or did he do it because he's really only worried about getting credit? Because in this story, he's really worried about getting what's fair about getting what he deserves, which is something we hear in the world all the time, particularly around refugees and immigrants and people without work, right? The the world loves this narrative of what's fair. And we love the idea as people that if we suffered or we were challenged to do something, if it was hard for us, then it should be hard for everybody else too. Why make it easier for the guy behind us? There's a callousness that develops in us as people, all of us. And it wants to see other people sort of have to struggle and go through the ringer the way that we did. If I had to work hard, you should have to work hard. And it's easy to get caught up and spun up in that sort of bitter, bitter attitude. And this is the third piece for us today. That especially when we find ourselves acting like Pharisees, because we all do, When we are of that mindset, like the Pharisees, this story is here to tell us that if we get hung up on credit, if we get hung up on what's right and getting our due, then we're going to continue to be frustrated by God's incredibly abundant economy. It is going to continue to be frustrating for us that God is not interested in what is fair. God does not look at fairness the way that we do. And so while we're tempted to think, you know, that's not fair, and I worked for that, I did all these things, and I didn't get the good stuff, there shouldn't be any handouts. God is going to continue to hand out mercy and love and celebration to whoever will receive it. By the armful. Forget about handouts. By the armful. God is waiting with open arms to drop gifts at the feet of the lost, but finding their way home, children, regardless of whether they've earned it or not or seem to us to deserve it or not because God's love is just that good and that present and that abundant and that merciful. Because we aren't the arbiters of what's fair, frankly, and we aren't the judges of what's right. We don't get to be judge and jury and decide who God loves and what they should get. And the tricky part is that like the Pharisees, when we find ourselves in that position in big or little ways from time to time. What we need to do is turn around and remember that we actually need grace just as much as anyone else. And as soon as we find ourselves sitting in judgment of someone like that, we really should circle back and remind ourselves that we are the lost child trying to come home. Where it's not just the father running down the road to meet the son, it's God running down the road to meet you. Beloved, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how long it's been since you've been to church or spent time talking to God, maybe that wasn't ever a part of your life, and you're only taking just that first step and discovering God now. Maybe it's been a while since you've felt connected to God, to this place, to the journey. No matter what it is in you that you think is too far away or unlovable, you can always come home you can always come back into yourself and come to know God, come to trust God, and be with us here on this journey home together. The good news about this story is that all you have to do is literally start down the road. All you have to do is take the first Couple of steps, just a little bit, just inching forward. Even if it feels dark, even if you can't see where you're going, just put your hands out and start going in the right direction. Because at the end of the day, once you've started, you have to know that God is waiting for you, trusting for you. That's part of you coming back into yourself. That's part of you coming back to your story, to yourself, to your senses and trusting that God is there, hands open, arms open, sandals on, hems gathered, butterflies in the stomach, and like the father who sees the son in the distance, God is waiting to prepare a feast for you, to run down the road, to fill you, to fulfill you, and to welcome you home, to hold you, to forgive you, to celebrate you, no matter who you are or where you are on this journey. Because you are beautifully and wonderfully made. And you are loved by the creator of all things more than you can possibly imagine. So this morning, I invite you to find your place in this story. And remember, there's no shame and no blame in finding your place in the story. If you're feeling like a Pharisee, that's okay. God can help you with that. (laughs) But find your place in the story. Trust in who you are and in whose you are, and in the truth that you are beloved. Let that knowledge awaken you again. Come into yourself. Retake your body and your senses. And then take those first few tentative steps. Imagine what it must have been like for the son to go home, right? He trusts in his father, but imagine the humility and the, and the deference and the desire. Take those first few brave Scared, bold steps. There is nothing so bad that you and God cannot find a way through it. There's nothing you can do to make God not love you. Nowhere you can go. Nothing you can do to lose God's love. If you hear nothing else today, hear this. You are God's Beloved, and God is waiting, hems in hand, teary and excited, to run down the road to meet you. Amen.